there is economic development in different countries and you have better technology and this playbook for international work it's getting developed like the barriers for this to happen start going down and this will happen whether you want it or not of course we're talking about very like privileged jobs or like you know it's people working in tech and digital types of jobs but again i'm going back to the premise here which is that is going to be the future of the economies of the countries that will you know do the best so do you want to be that type of country or not Welcome to Tech Talks, the show brought to you by Nash Squared, hosted by myself, David Savage. And today we are talking to Microverse founder Ariel, who is talking about the opportunity presented by collaboration through remote working and why organizations or countries that don't get with the program may well lose out. Oh, there's a gallery of iconic guitars that looks quite good. Oh, sorry, mate, you're recording. No, that's a great opening to the podcast. Sorry, sorry. For anyone, for, for anyone who's interested, I'm in Tennessee. I'm in, in a, uh, well, Franklin, but very close to Nashville. And Akish was just looking for things for me to do as I hit record. Guitars. Mm, mm. There's, a, there's a gallery of iconic guitars, which, I mean, if you're a music lover or liker, you know, they, they've probably got some famous, uh, yeah, famous strings, mate, that have been... Um, that have been played by by the likes of Prince and Lenny Kravitz and yeah good good Music anyway thing. I'm not a tourist uh, <laughs> centre well you know. yeah well, welcome, say, welcome like, to Tech Talks rate, Dave, you won't actually be doing any work because you've got so many things to do that Akish is just putting you in like an itinerary in place I, I think that's fair I don't see that there's anything wrong with that no look welcome to today's show uh, on a serious note we're talking to the founder and CEO of Microverse and we're talking all about remote working which feels appropriate given that I am on the other side of the pond this week working so therefore obviously remote from Akish and Amber who are back in the UK uh so ariel is um our guest he's from barcelona and then later in the show we've got uh, an interview with dima who is the ceo of uptech based in kiev in the ukraine um another founder from the ukraine who got in touch with us on the back of some of the other interviews that we've done recently and wanted to share his story really fascinating he's hired 12 people and won five new projects in recent months despite the conflict in ukraine so that's definitely worth staying on to listen to to see how he's had to adapt his leadership style first of all we are going to talk to ariel from microverse uh we'll be back in a moment so i'm trying to ariel camas is it ariel ariel make sure i get this pronunciation right i don't want to offend you in the first few seconds oh you won't <laughs> offend me i work with people from all around the world so i'm used to all kinds of you know versions of my name uh in spanish my family will call me ariel but yep. what works, for example, in English, if I go to Starbucks, is Ariel. Right. Well, I don't think going to Starbucks is necessarily the, the kind of the, 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 the uh, definitive version of someone's no, name. No, but it's but something we'll... you can you can iterate a lot on that until you get it right. And I like getting yeah. things right. So like the day you go and say Ariel, and they're like, and they spell it out correctly in the in the cup. You're like, yes. <laughs> See, David works brilliantly because David, David, it's very, you know, it's it's a name that everyone recognizes and all right, the pronunciation might change, but it's kind of fairly international. Anyway, yeah, the trade-off. <laughs> yeah, that's one side. You are the CEO, uh, founder, co-founder of Microverse. Is it founder, co-founder? Founder, founder right? yeah. This is founder. Uh, second startup. The previous one had an amazing co-founder. This one, I decided to go solo. Amazing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Microverse before we get into anything else? Yeah, absolutely. We are a school, an online school, 
that uh, trains people for the future of work. So we are specialized in technical careers, but most importantly, we prepare people to work remotely and internationally. And we have figured out how to make this work with a new type of educational approach. It's like peer-to-peer learning, where you don't have teachers, you don't have classrooms. What you have are is students who are learning from and with each other. And this environment is made up of people from 140 different countries today, all of them learning full-time at Microsoft. So this is an amazing environment where you get to not just learn to code or learn how to design, but also learn how to work with people from other cultures in a remote environment. And that gives these people an edge when it comes to getting to those types of jobs. And 80% of our students come from mostly like emerging and developing countries where they wouldn't have access to join the global economy otherwise, and companies wouldn't have access to that type of talent otherwise. So we get to make that connection that really makes the world better and, and, and makes our hearts uh, you know, glow every day. So you say there about you know training people for the future of work, and immediately you talk about remote, remote and international. When you say future of work, I mean, that's a phrase that people have been using a lot over the last three, four years. What, what do you envisage the future of work being? Yeah, I'm lately actually changing this like the present of work because it's it's here, it's here to stay and the, the time to adjust it's now. But I, I think it's a really good question. So when I think about our future, and I'm not talking about long-term future, I'm, I'm thinking like right now, we have massive challenges ahead of us. We have climate change that is right, right here, right now that we have to, to solve it. And it's just the beginning of the types of challenges that we're going to have to face and solve as we evolve as a species. The more complicated the species become, the more evolved, the larger the problems become. And these types of issues require people from all parts of the world joining the global economy and approaching the solution in a collaborative way. And if we can learn something from COVID is that we are really, really, really bad at solving problems in a global way. So I, I am an optimistic, uh, like, like too much of an optimistic sometimes. And I guess that's a good trait for an entrepreneur sometimes. But I do believe, I have really high hopes that we will figure these things out. But I do think that we also need to get much better at collaborating globally as one species instead of us 220 different countries and sometimes even, even more ground early than that. I think this is worth focusing on, right? Because the the accusation leveled at remote working is that you get great productivity, yes, but it harms collaboration. Quite clearly, the way that you're talking, you feel that remote working doesn't necessarily need to be to the detriment of collaboration. Well, I think what we have seen so far, or at least what most people have seen as a consequence of COVID, is just like the first kind of like, MVP, like minimum viable product of what remote work could be, which means it has a lot of bugs, right? We're still spending a lot of time in meetings. We're not writing great documentation. We don't have the training to work with people in different time zones. We don't have the training to be really good at writing things and conveying things in in, in a written way. Uh, These are all the new skills that are necessary for great collaboration to take place in a remote environment. And where you get, when you see companies uh, that have been doing this for a while, like GitLab, for example, uh, that was part of the inspiration for me to start uh, Microverse, you get to see that they have developed this way of working that then we have, uh, many of us have followed. And, you know, I've been working remotely myself for the past 
10 years now. And with my course, four years with every team member is uh, working remote internationally. And you see that it's not only possible, but also because you can bring together people from all parts of the world, you can integrate a lot of new perspectives, which drives more innovation, which drives more growth. So like definitely collaboration is possible and it opens up to opportunities that wouldn't be possible otherwise. And it's just different. We happen to not know what the playbook for that new world is yet. And that's what we're here for, is like to help people learn this new playbook. I would, I would argue that peer-to-peer learning is fairly reliant on on collaboration. You know, if you're going to really learn something, you need to work with others to learn. And, and otherwise, it's just kind of repetition and parrot fashion. Obviously, there you said that you've been working in remote environments for 10 years and you've kind of taken that playbook. How, how have you lifted some of those lessons to Microverse to make sure that the learning environment is as uh, immersive and enriching as it can be? So it was 20, 2013... I had just sold my previous startup to Lonely Planet, to the travel uh, guides brand. And before I started working for them for a while, I decided to take one month to like find inspiration in my life. And I traveled to Burundi in East Africa, uh, where I taught in a university of computer science for a while. And I got to see the most extreme version of what my own life could have been if my parents hadn't emigrated from Latin America to Europe when I was a kid. And I got to see the most extreme version of the spectrum when it comes to access to opportunities compared to what I was used to seeing in San Francisco, where a company had just acquired my company for millions of dollars just to hire a bunch of software engineers. So I started thinking, okay, this doesn't make any sense. And it was right after I came back from that trip that I met the founder of GitLab, that today it's a public company. You know, They went public in the NASDAQ last year, more than 2,000 employees, all of them working remotely. And... You can go to Google right now and search for like GitLab's team handbook. It is probably more than 12,000 pages of public documentation on how they run their company in a distributed way across the world and how you can do the same in your company. So I got to see this firsthand by seeing them growing from 150 employees to 2000 today. Um, like Sid, the founder, became like an important mentor in my life and, and he's really passionate about education as well. So I started like looking at how they were doing this and I realized, okay, the technical challenges of like coding are still there, but then they have a lot of new issues like uh, multicultural cooperation. Uh, I always this, this, like share this book and I should start getting some commissions, by the way, because I've done this too many times at this point. It's The Culture Map. The Culture Map, it's a wonderful book. I don't know if you've read it, David. I haven't. It's uh, The author is Erin Mayer. She co-wrote uh, the book uh, No Rules Rules with the founder of Netflix. And she's, uh, she's a consultant specialist in multicultural collaboration. And sort of like understanding how different cultures I mean, behind that, there's just humans. But the way we give feedback can be more direct, more indirect. We can be lower context, high, con- higher context. We can be more flexible with time. We can be more hierarchical. We can be more emotional. And there's no right or wrong. There's just different. But being aware of those differences like, makes you feel like you have superpowers that will take you a life to master. And that's where we started with the program. We decided, how do we create an environment that will create opportunities for people to face these challenges. Because if you don't face them, you will never learn about them. Reading a book is not enough. And then how do we provide training in parallel to to the technical training that in this environment that will force them to face these challenges every day, that will give them the tools to face one person that is 
always, you know, not punctual in their meetings and they are like, you know, Dutch people and they're super punctual or they're being completely indirect in their feedback and they prefer direct feedback, like all these differences, like they can be learned how to deal with them and truly makes communication and collaboration much easier. I think it's interesting that you talk about, you saw different examples of how your life could have worked out in various different places. And you talk about the fact that remote work is a step towards an equitable world and the, the benefits of globalization. Right now, it feels like we're at a bit of a, a crossroads with the attitudes of governments in certain countries versus perhaps the aspiration of entrepreneurial leaders. Um, you know, if I look at the press here in the UK, there's a lot of talk at the minute about getting people back to offices in London coming from the government. And that is not necessarily what we're hearing from employees and employers around hybrid working. How do you think this might play out? Because it would appear that lawmakers have a very different view of what an equitable world might be from people like yourselves in the entrepreneurial community. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I was asked to comment on these uh, new um, ideas from your prime minister earlier this morning. So <laughs> I, I, I've been thinking about this. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can try to create laws to, to stop things, but we're going through this massive digital transformation in the world that is just getting started. And it has so many benefits and so many people who want to consume these things. And even if right now we're going through like, you know, a, a market that might seem to be going down, the underlying transformation won't stop. People want to continue consuming like streaming services and they want to continue getting better cars. And we have like, you know, partially solve the climate change issue with technology and we want better internet connections and better phones and whatnot. So this will continue happening. But the thing that is preventing this the most is this massive talent gap that everybody's talking about, where universities are not able to produce enough talent to join these types of jobs. And you have countries like the US with more than a million open jobs that will go unfilled this year, right? At, at least that's the, the, the number that everybody is, is talking about. But this, the reality is that this is happening in every single country in the world. So if you want your productive model as a, uh, uh, model as a country to be a model based on technology, on innovation model for the future, you'll have to, like, to incentivize that to happen. How can you make that happen if you have no talent to do it. And I think it's a fallacy that we don't have talent. We have a lot of talent. It just happens that talent is disconnected from opportunities. So now you start seeing companies that because they can't compete with the big employers that can pay big bucks, they are starting to say, well, what if I can hire in another country? I can, you know, spend half of what I will pay here. I can pay a much higher salary than what this person will make locally. It will be much happier. They're going to stay with me much longer in the company. I get to bring more diversity into the company. And like it's like, how are you going to stop that incentive, right? And I think, sure, um, history is never a straight line, at least not in the, you know, when we look in the, the, the lifespan of our attention, right, of one, two, three years, it's always like up and down and, you know, right and left. And But when you look and you like zoom out, like it's inevitable, right? We have the... I guess, like offshoring, nearshoring, freelance economy. And the, the human quality behind all this work is the same, right? And as 
there is economic development in different countries and you have better technology and this playbook for international work, it's getting developed. Like the barriers for this to happen start going down and this will happen whether you want it or not. Of course, we're talking about very like privileged jobs or like, you know, it's people working in tech and digital types of jobs. But again, I'm going back to the premise here, which is that is going to be the future of the economies of the countries that will, you know, do the best. So do you want to be that type of country or not? It's an interesting ideological challenge for the kind of the the, the economies that are based on kind of neoliberal market led um, economies, uh, conservative market led economies, free economies now actually kind of intervening and, and saying something quite different, perhaps. Um, it's a, it's an interesting crossroads. Um, I'd love to talk about your entrepreneurial journey a little bit, because I think it's fascinating. As you said, Latin American born, uh, emigrated to Spain um, for, for, for better opportunities. And then you have, um, you know, this is your second startup, your first you sold, exited um, very successfully, as you've mentioned. What do you think makes a successful entrepreneur? Everything but me. I don't believe <laughs> in free will, which is a weird th- say to, uh, thing to say as an entrepreneur. In fact, when I say this, most people are like, Ariel, you? You who are like always looking to like improve things, to get better, to change the world. Like You don't believe in free will? Like, no, I don't. And I'll explain this, although we can talk probably for two hours just about this topic. Um, I think that everything we are, everything we say, everything we do, it's a consequence of a precondition or a series of preconditions. And that's our environment. That is uh, the education we had. That is for sure the genes that we got from our parents. That is the time and history where we were born. The Everything that surrounds us, right? So when I go and I start a company, I was asked, like, you know, what is driving me to start this company? And I don't think there's like a magical switch inside my brain that out of nowhere says, you want to start a company. There is something that says, well, you probably saw when you were younger, someone who you admire as a kid who had started a business and you were compelled to that, or you had a more structured brain in a certain way. Like there's always a reason why those decisions are being made. And when you ask me like, you know, like what what made me be who I am and be where I am? It's it's my parents. It's being lucky, being born at this time in in history where at least in the places where I've been lucky to live, there there was a lot of like peace and economic growth. So like it wasn't me. So what advice would you give to someone who might not feel that they've had those advantages, who might not feel that they've got the education, who might not feel that they've been lucky, but still has a desire to better themselves, to start something, they have an idea? What advice would you give to them? If they have the desire to better themselves, whether that's coming from their own merit or whatever conditioned them to feel that, I know I'm playing with the of free will here, right? <laughs> they have that. There are people that don't have that. So that's amazing. They have that. And we live in a world today where there are opportunities for everybody, even if they're born or today they're in a place that is at a huge disadvantage. And an example of this was uh, last week, I had a student that uh, we, we needed people to complete a survey to collect some data. And like when someone in our team said, 
uh, as a reward for people submitting this survey, we're going to give them, to, you know, a short free coaching session with Ariel. I'm like, really? People want to fill the survey because of that? And like, I mean, try. And yeah, students were really happy to have the session with me. So I jumped in a call with, with this lady. Um, she's an immigrant from uh, Rwanda, who is now in South Africa. And we were talking about how, how, it, how it's been for her to be a woman of color, uh, immigrant, who is trying to access global jobs and everything, you know, in the video game of life is against her. And what I said to her was like, that is absolutely true. But it is also true that there are companies in the world who are desperate to hire for whatever reason. I'm not going to enter into like, you know, the, 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 the reason there, but for whatever reason, they are desperate to attract more diversity, people of color or women in tech. So you can go and laser focus on those specific types of companies and just focus on them. Well, what happened is we did a little experiment together focusing on those companies in less than a week. She improved her salary like 800%. She got nine companies from Silicon Valley reaching out to her, companies looking for diversity. She got a job offer. She's working for the new company now. So like, I think it's about everything. It's like a double-edged uh, sword where everything that can be against you, you can find a way to turn it around. And it is a world that rewards people who think outside the box, who like really wants to do the things. You have to just be clever and also being clever or not again are you conditioned to that i believe so but well that's why we are doing things like micros we're trying to open up the awareness of people to all these possibilities because it starts with one being aware that this is possible and two believing in yourself the rest is the easy part so look, microverse offers people from from all sorts of backgrounds the opportunity to learn coding and not pay anything as i understand this until they secure a job Correct that me is, if that's wrong. That is correct. They only pay once they get a job that is like three, four times the amount that they would get paid locally. So then if that sounds attractive to someone listening, what would they do? How do they, they find out more about Microverse? Oh, it's quite easy. Just go to microverse.org. There's a big button that says apply. I recommend surfing through our FAQ, which is massive and has every single answer to every single question you might ask yourself. And about my career, it's not about life, although, you know, there might be some advice there too. And it, it, it's a process that is not simple in the sense that it's long. Uh, we receive thirty to 40,000 applications a month out of we select a few hundred. But the main reason preventing people, and this is a hard lesson as a mission to an entrepreneur, is that you can't help everybody, at least not yet. Uh, it's like an onion that you peel layer by layer and you get to more and more people little by little. But today it's a full-time program in English that, that requires you to like have kind of like tinker with coding a little bit to like decide if that's something that you really like or not. But if you have those things, which a lot of people don't, right? You need to have the financial support to stay engaged with time with the program for a year. But if you have those things, we do everything we can to help you get started in the program. And, you know, next year we're going to launch a part-time program and then a program in Spanish and Arabic so that you need to know English previously. It's one step at a time, but it, it's it's as simple as applying to the process. You don't need to be a genius. You don't need to have a computer science degree. You don't even need any kind of previous degree. You just need to have those elements that I mentioned before. Well, look, I really appreciate your time today. Um, very jealous of the fact that, I think we mentioned this before we hit record, that you're moving to the beach this weekend and in Spain. So entirely jealous of that. Um, so I hope that that goes well. 
and uh, fingers crossed we can catch up with you soon and and see how the future of work has shaped out thank you david i definitely won the lottery of life and that includes having this time with you today i'm really grateful for <laughs> for you having me here thank you right okay so um <clears throat> this is quite interesting really because it's 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 I suppose it's it's striking at the heart of this conversation around the future of work. Uh, I, and Ariel is pretty punchy, isn't he? The underlying trend won't stop. Prevention towards remote working is mostly caused by a talent gap. He talks about a million open jobs that will be unfulfilled this year in the USA um, and that it's the future of economies of countries that will do well. And you have to ask yourself what type of country you'll be. I mean, it's pretty punchy, right? Yeah, he's an interesting character, isn't he? He's, um, yeah, he had some like really interesting points. And I think, like you said, this obviously conversation has been going on for quite some time and just around like remote working and stuff. But I don't know, it was, it was quite interesting just to hear like a different take on it as well. Because I feel like a lot of it, you know, we sort of have the same types of conversations, but I feel like he had some like different opinions. And yeah, and obviously he's kind of like molded his business around remote working as well, hasn't he? Which is really interesting. I think what you basically get from this, when you say he's got different opinions, is that he thinks that this is the first iteration of remote working. But I think what's implied here, basically, is most organisations haven't really bothered to study what works. Everyone's kind of still working in the traditional way that we always work, going, you can't collaborate online. And he's gone, no, there's playbooks out there. People just aren't taking the lessons and looking at the tools that they need to employ to make this work properly. Yeah. But I think, I think also, right, I think... It, a lot of companies, their hands been forced to work remotely because of the pandemic. And obviously... You don't think they want to? I mean, I, I, I think... I mean, you hear about it now, right? Like, you see stuff in the news in the UK around, like, you know, consultancies. I mean, we can name them because they've been on BBC, but like PwC, for example, right? They're trying to get their workers back into the offices. Um, you've got large banks, you know, that are trying to go kind of the hybrid way of working, I'll throw our names in the hat as well. I mean, we're, you know, we're trying to get people to come back into the office as well. And kind of, we do embody the the agile or the flexible way of working. However, I think there is still an appetite for people to, to get the job done, you know, in person as compared to remotely as well. It depends on what you do. Yes. Like I kind of think it depends on your job role, but like he, he seems to have very adamant and very kind of, you know, um, clear ideas on remote working and he's been doing it for 10 years I think he said in a couple of different firms that he started up and then sold yeah off, and, and he references GitLab who've been doing it for yeah. I think nearly 20 years he mentions yeah so I mean I do get his point but I mean I'm sorry I'm I'll sit on the other side of his argument I'm I'm all up for kind of going back into the office but you know that's that's just me I might be in the minority I don't know I think the two don't have to be mutually um exclusive we talk about being back in the office and being able to collaborate and what's what's wrong i i think that we can collab we can collaborate online effectively i i think i think ariel's point and your point can both be true i think people can simply want to be in the office because they like being in the office but i don't think it's a case of you have to be in the office to collaborate and i do think there's there's a fair point being made here that this is the first iteration of remote working and unfortunately whether you like it or not we're moving in this direction and to try and stop it or to turn back is probably futile yeah and you think as well like you've just said there obviously 
it's people look at them as such separates don't they like you said to be collaborative it's like let's go into the office let's all get together or if you're just working from like home and you want to get your head down sorry if you're working you know and you want to get your head down that's the days where you should just stay at home and and just kind of crack on but I don't know I just think you could like you say you can do both and I think a lot of people like Keith said have just sort of been forced into it so their idea of like remote working and effective remote working is like oh we've got teams or we have a teams call or you know we might jump on and like share our screens or something but that seems such like a I don't know, like a simple way of looking at it, doesn't it? Because there probably are so many other ways that you can do it that he's obviously sort of touched upon that seem really effective, like playbooks, I think you mentioned, I think, sorry, he mentioned, but yeah. people are just doing it in a really like half-assed type of way. It's like, oh no, we'll just, you know, we'll just like share our screens or, you know, to be super effective, like I said, you need to get back to the office. And it's, it's like, I don't know, yeah. are you being that kind of like, experimental with it or that sort of like trusting of the process or is it just like when we need stuff done right get everyone back in to their desks and sit on there and to, to be honest how how collaborative is it to have everyone in the office on a team's call without headphones in so that you've got a million and one bloody conversations in stereo going on all around you I mean, it's not like we're going back into the office and changing the way that we work in a really kind of interesting and intimate way. We're just kind of doing what we do at home, mm. but shouting at each other across the office at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the only time I think it is really effective, and I think we were actually talking about this earlier, Rakesh, is like when you need to like bounce ideas off each other, like say you're working on some sort of like project together um, and I don't know, you just want to ask someone a question. Like to call someone and ask them a question seems like a bit more of like a chore, doesn't it? Or it's like you have to kind of go to them with some sort of purpose. Whereas if you are in the office and you just, you know, tap your mate on the shoulder and say, well, can I ask you this or can I just run this by you? That seems a lot easier. And I think people are more willing to do that. Whereas if you have to ask a question, you don't want to seem a nuisance. You just sit on the information. You're like, oh, I, I, you know, you might not bother. And I'm not saying that's the case for everyone, but I'd say majority of people probably would be more inclined to ask questions and collaborate and have more conversation if they are in like an office environment around other people. Yeah. Mm. I think, I think also, right. And I'm just going to put this out there. Like we, we work in sales, I work in sales and I think a lot of learning is done when you listen to other people. Like I'll, I'll hear someone say something in a certain way or, you know, I'll get, I'll get hit with a, uh, like a situation and if I'm if I'm at home and if I'm sat here, uh, you know, I, I can kind of go over my thoughts. I can maybe call a couple of people or message people about what they would think. But you don't get that input and, and you don't listen to other people's kind of, you know, things or the way they're working. I also think you, you kind of feel, oh, I do anyway. I feel a bit out of the loop if I'm not meeting people. And I, I, I don't know, man, I, I'm I'm very much towards the hybrid i mean if, if you if you took hybrid and you were like leaning more towards the office then i'm prob- possibly in there but i don't know i just i think yeah. it's so open to interpretation I, I i think i think the best examples i've seen of collaboration are actually outside of the office but when teams get together so mm. in person but in different locations 
So I went to Barcelona with some colleagues last week. Loads of really great learning ex- experiences. And I think learned far more than I would learn with that team in the same office because you just go into the same routines that you used to in an office. And there are lots of, of companies who are going, look, we'll work, we'll work remotely, but we'll come together in different cities for conferences, for work get-togethers, away from home, away from our usual routines, and really have a bonding experience. And I think those are really kind of enriching, valuable experiences that a lot more companies could look at and actually taking people out of their usual routines and not just thinking that the office is this wonderful collaborative mixing pot uh, is a, is an interesting way forward. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, actually. But then I think, I don't know, to play like devil's advocate a bit, I think companies will always think, oh, if, like you said, if you go in and doing like a conference elsewhere or it's like a bonding experience, they'll just sort of question like, what is the value in that? Or, you know, if they're not, like you said, sat at their computer, is it going to be as valuable as if they are just kind of cracking on and we can see that they're busy? I think there's like a bit of a old school sort of like mentality sometimes of like you have to be seen to be working to be working. Do you know what I mean? And I think people have had to let that go a bit during like COVID and stuff and hybrid working. But I think some people still sort of like hold on to that a little bit. And I'm mm. very much the same as Keach. Like I'm very much like all for the office and like a hybrid approach. But I just think, yeah, there's some sort of like people who are really very much like sort of stuck in their ways or a bit sort of like backwards in the way that they're thinking. And it's, you know, it is just kind of going very much forwards, like digital, like he's mentioned. Yeah. But I, I also think it depends on the firm. Like the businesses that he's run maybe have been, you know, more kind of product led and, and, and you know, kind of technology enabled <clears throat> and, and, and their whole kind of way of working is to how can they better this product or how can they you know, kind of make sure that that product is is kind of doing what it says it is. And, you know, the kind of sales and maybe the business development side looks after itself. I don't know. But, you know, if you're in an organization which is revenue generating and you need to be an individual contributor towards that revenue, I think, yeah, I, I still think that there is a space, which is why the, the day they make a trade floor remote is the day that you can say that every job can be done remotely, right? Which is why traders in the city of London were still going in during the pandemic. In fact, yeah, some banks had kind of turned some of their floors into accommodation for these people because obviously they couldn't be coming in and out. So yeah, there's a long way to go, but yeah. I don't know. I agree with him. I think he's got valid points, but you know, um... I, I think the underlying takeaway from it for me, and you're right, like there has to be room for everybody. Like mm. it's not flexible to force people out of the office. That's yeah. inflexibility in the other direction. Mm. But I think he's right that it, we are heading. There is a trend here, and to ignore it is silly. And actually, where we are working remotely, or when we work, and there is an element of all of our work now that is remote. Like mm. all three of us are in different locations today. That we are on the first iteration of this, and actually, it's about making sure that the tools are used better to make this style of working more collaborative so there's less pressure on the physical environment being the place where collaboration happens because i'm not entirely sure that that's really the case mm. yeah and what he's doing as well like obviously that will only help us because i've seen you, you see quite a lot of these like training type academies don't you but the thing that makes this obviously really different is that it's geared towards remote working and obviously like um like globally dispersed teams as well so yeah. The more people start to sort of have conversations around that or like completely tailor their business model just for those individuals or that sort of style of working, it's I mean, yeah, again, obviously that's gonna only make it more and more sort of popular or people are more prepared and more sort of like ready for it. Yeah. 
Look, I think that should do for this part of the conversation. Uh, we are now going to switch focus, as I said, to Dima, CEO of Uptech. Uh, this is another account from a technology leader in Ukraine, continuing to tell that story. Loads of really great leadership insight here. And the the kind of really heartening story of, of a company going through growth right now, despite the circumstances in which he finds himself. So um, do continue to listen for that. But Akish, Amber, thanks for your time. And uh, we'll be back next week. So I'm talking to Dima, Dima Kovalenko. Good afternoon. You're joining us from Kiev, correct? Yep, uh, that's correct. Um, good evening, David. Yeah, it's what is it? So you're two hours ahead, I think. So it's early yeah, yeah, yeah. You. Just gone five o'clock. I suppose it's beginning to look like evening here. <laughs> um, look, you're the CEO of Uptech, uh, and you reached out to us because um, you noticed our recent um, interview with with Alexander uh, from McPaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of our other uh, chats that we've had recently kind of covering people who are caught up in the uh, Ukrainian-Russian war uh, that's ongoing. So thank you for making some time and for getting in touch. Um, As we said, CEO of Uptech, you are a a technology leader. Before anything else, let's just talk about who Uptech are, and, and then we'll kind of get into everything else, which is obviously rather large as a subject. Yes, uh, sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, uh, yeah, I'm a technology leader and I'm a developer myself. And some times ago, six time, six years ago, I've decided to build my own agency. So I partnered with my friend and we built Uptech, which is initially a software development company. And then we started with product management and design alongside development services. So now we are 85 people and building projects for clients in Europe, uh, in the US, all over the world, also building some uh, startups in-house. So we have a couple of R&D projects as well. So um, 85 people now, how long How long did it take you to go from ideation, from going, yeah, this, this is a company that I think has some legs to being where you are today? Like zero days, I think. Um, <laughs> I think we had we had this idea uh, for for some time and contemplated contemplated uh, building an agency, but yeah, generally we ha- we had this date uh, where we decided that we will quit our jobs and start taking on uh, start taking on uh, new projects from like, our friends and also hiring our friends. So that escalated pretty quickly. Um, so look. You have made the decision to be in Kyiv. You haven't been in Kyiv throughout the whole time. There have been a, a few moments where you've left the city. Um, how is the situation with regards to the business right now? One of the things that has come across in other conversations with technology leaders in, in Ukraine is that you're you're open for business. The best way to support people in the Ukraine right now, the best way to support your industry to carry on working with you to send you projects um how easy has that been for you as a business to do um, yeah thank you for this question so of course the war is very unpredictable and we didn't know what to expect um turns out the it sector uh, wasn't hit very hard and in fact we have become a backbone of economy because a lot of other sectors of ukrainian economy uh is struggling uh, a lot um, because they are not able to work physically. 
but IT is uh, doing pretty good in this regard, and like IT sector is helping the economy and helping the army. Um, of course, different companies was affected differently. There were some great uh, like companies which uh, had Ukraine as a target audience, and they were hit very hard, and they had to lay off people um, and agency businesses like ours wasn't affected that bad when you say wasn't affected that bad do you just want to qualify that because <laughs> yeah i suppose normal well, disaster recovery and business you know business continuity versus what you're going through is is it's probably not in your planning documentation in normal time yeah well well we had our business continuity for covid and for it sector covid was uh was a larger disaster, I would say, because right. like the 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 market like shrinked uh, a lot during like period of several weeks, um, and um, now yes, like we we created these plans and we try to understand what will happen. And like one of the bad scenarios was that our clients would just terminate our contracts in a matter of weeks or days, and new clients will not come to Ukraine because, of course, it's a business risk. Um, and we planned for this risk as far as you can. <laughs> of course, there's some degrees, um, some things which you, which you cannot fix. But uh, ultimately, um, what happened during the first weeks is Ukraine got huge international support, and uh, that provided with some some risk aversion from our uh, some some actions from our side. We managed to keep all of our clients, uh, all of our clients except one, and we even managed to get new clients after the war. And those clients, if you, if you don't mind me asking, have they, have they kind of come with that attitude of we want to support Ukrainian business, or is it no, no, we just I, I don't know, kind of what's the dynamic there? I suppose there must be a lot of goodwill. Yeah, we we noticed that there are some clients who come to Ukraine and like, hey, we want to support Ukraine, and that's why we want to work with you. Mm. Like, and that certainly is a factor. Uh, so I think we got like one client who like um, who knew about Uptech. They worked with us before, and they just wanted to support us, and that's why they started the project with us. But I think uh, it it is also combined that they understand that like Ukraine is a good company for tech talent and. That combined with the international support um, allowed outsourced businesses in uh, agency businesses in Ukraine to well live and thrive even. So you make the point that COVID was almost worse for the industry. Yes, um, which is which is a really interesting point to make. But I suppose nonetheless, um, COVID you, you might have been in Eastern Ukraine. But you could have worked at home fairly kind of reliably, whereas now that might not be the case. How how displaced has your team of eighty five been, or have they have they been in parts of the country where they've been reasonably safe? Actually, no. Like even with people working working remotely from their homes, they're mostly in Kiev. Right. And Kiev was not the safe uh, was not the safe place to be in the first uh, week or two. Well, subjectively, but still. Uh, and most of the people uh, need uh, relocated from Kiev in, in a matter of days. And like COVID experience certainly helped because, uh, I mean, we get these new disasters every 
every year now, it seems. Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, at least we managed to learn how to work remotely and uh, that, that helped here. So during the war, um, yes, everybody was at, at their homes, working from their homes, homes, but still they had to relocate to Western part of Ukraine. And that uh, that took a lot of uh, logistical and organizational uh, time and effort in the first three to five days. I mean, we talk about lessons learned from COVID in mm-hmm. the UK, say, from businesses, and I can see the transformative effect it's had on working patterns and attitudes towards work and life balance split you've obviously had this additional um atrocity to live through and you mentioned there seems to be something every year what what do you think you will take from this fingers crossed that um it does come to an end but uh reasonably soon but it, it may not i mean what how are you how are you planning for the future and how do you think it might make you more robust yes i i think like any crisis makes you uh makes you more robust uh, as long as you live through it. Uh, so uh, what COVID has taught us is of course, how to work remotely. Um, and I think one of the management lessons for me was uh, not to overreact to things because during COVID we we, mm, we made some decisions like quick decisions uh, that uh, like com- compromised our uh, our results down the road. So we lowered our uh, like standards for um, for getting new projects uh, and changed some of our processes. And that, that paid off uh, pretty badly in the long run. So what um, I learned from it is not overreact to things and um, yeah, not overreact to things. And, and, and yeah, and sorry. and, and uh, yeah, sorry. Um, and, and another thing which which we did during COVID is like we completely stopped our growth. We just were afraid to do anything. And I understood that um, like every crisis is an, is an opportunity, right? So we were much more prepared for for this uh, new crisis of war. Uh, we had some financial resources, and we were much more competent. And basically, what we did is we. Uh, stepped in and even uh, and become much more aggressive in terms of growth. So we managed to hire 12 new people wow. starting the beginning of the war and we got five new projects. That was aggressive, but it ultimately paid off. Um, one part of it is like some product companies had to lay off people. So we hired them in. And of course, like what is happening in Ukraine is horrible. But still, like we are grateful to be able to work and to have this opportunity to support uh, families of those tech folks and also support the army. Yes, you mentioned they support the army. You you are a co-founder with with Optech. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that during COVID, everyone went very insular. Everyone was forced to stay home to isolate, and and then we were online working and that made work become i think even a, a real a, a focal point for everyone to 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 work through that period and to to come out of restrictions certainly that was my experience um i suppose with with this um situation that you now find yourselves in it isn't that 
yes, there's there's a hell of a lot of awful uh, external noise, but it isn't that you insulate yourself from that. There is an element of supporting that, and perhaps even some people going and actively supporting that. You know, an extreme example being, you know, the, the Eurovision Song Contest. The, the singers going to the Eurovision Song Contest and then back to to kind of the the the, the fighting in in the very next mm-hmm. week. How have you juggled that? Because I imagine that your team might feel a pull of two directions, whereas during the, the, the pandemic, there, it was very easy to see this is our focus. You and your co-founder might have difficulty, I suppose, making making your business the sole focus of, of your team's lives right now when, when there's obviously other kind of pulls and, and emotional ties on their time. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah that, that's a great question. Um, so... The, the psychology of like people in our team changed and changed from day to day to week to week and there are other like various things were um, at the spotlight let's say um, and what actually helped is that I communicated daily with with the team during the first week uh, and days of work like one-on-one just to understand what what they're thinking about and what are their worries and during the first week, let's say, yeah, it was very hard to work. I mean, everybody was just uh, reading through the news or like doing what they need to do to make sure that they're that they are safe and their families are safe. So it was impossible for most of the team to work in a week. But in a week, they kind of get get back to work. And uh, I wouldn't say that people just were focused solely on the war or solely on on the work. What actually happened is that um, people tend to like um, follow the news a lot and work has become this kind of like uh, safe island or stable island where they can focus on some parts of the day and that part is predictable and that part is safe for them. So what we found is that it was kind of easier to to work during the first two weeks, two months of work even, because, um, yeah, people just understood that, yeah, they have this work and they had to focus on it. But other times, if they're out of work, they tend to worry. What's your attitude towards the war now? I, we're now nearly, nearing 90 days, nearing three months of this conflict ongoing it it feels like it has become attritional um and whilst there is huge positivity if i reference back to to eurovision you know uh, president zelensky talking about the desire to host the contest in uh, the contest in mariupol next year that's i understand that that kind of rhetoric is very positive rhetoric for the ukrainian people to hear to kind of to to rally around but what what is your honest kind of day-to-day experience right now and attitude towards what you're seeing around you I, I, i've seen this new article on forbes and basically they have two articles one is uh, from 10 days before the war which says uh headline says will russia invade ukraine and uh, the recent article on forbes is will ukrainian army invade russia so the dynamics has certainly changed um, during the last few weeks, few months. But um, yeah, I think the war will uh, is certainly traditional at this point, and it will. Uh, well, the current estimates is that it will end sometime in August or September, 
and Russia is going for long-term war. Um, what I'm personally worried about is that Russia fully has like resources to actually like occupy those southern and eastern territories and keep it keep it under Russia. Uh, it will not be easy for them, but they can do it. So that's what I'm worried about because in the east. Um, a lot of fighting has been going on, and in the south, uh, the large city of Kherson is uh, is currently occupied. Uh, yeah, and and that that worries me. Look, it's been fascinating to talk to you. I really appreciate you kind of reaching out, having seen some of the other the other interviews um, with your compatriots, um, and I think it's really important to keep keep kind of the human stories kind of coming out of Ukraine for people to hear. And, and so I, yeah, I genuinely appreciate your time mm-hmm. and, and your candid um, comments about, about your experience as a, as a business leader and also as, as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is interested in working with Uptech, you know, that, that hiring mm-hmm. of 12 people, five new projects is, is I think really inspiring given the circumstances. If someone thinks, you know what, Let's get in touch with Dima and find out if we can help support their business. What should they do? Well, they can certainly go on our website and contact our sales team. I think they're doing a much better job than than me explaining <laughs> what we can do and how. <laughs> when I try to do it, they just push me out. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so, so the website is uh, uptech.team, I think. And yeah, we, we can certainly help. Well, look, I really appreciate your time. Uh, stay safe. I hope that um, that uh, you're able to enjoy an element of normal life uh, during the summer and, and so on. And fingers crossed that you're right and the conflict does begin to come to an end towards the autumn and you can you can begin to look forward and uh, apply some of the lessons that you've learned to, to help kind of strengthen the, the, the business and the wider economy. Yep. Uh, thank you. And also thank you for your time.